Okay, so let's look at these verses very closely in Sanskrit. Uh, it begins, Jata Shanto. Uh, anyway, I won't go into all the grammatical details, but it indicates a person whose Shadha, whose strong faith in Krishna, Jata, has arisen, literally is born. Jata, Jata Shadho. So a person whose faith has arisen, Matkatasu, this is Krishna speaking, in my kata, in the stories about me, in the philosophy about me. And at the same time, the person is near Sarva Karmasu. The person is detached from all karmas, from uh, all you know ordinary activities. And so I'm going to, uh, in the Sanskrit dictionary, the word near vinna, which is interesting. I'll tell you what the dictionary literally says about that. Uh, one who is uh, loathing, to loathe something, to be disgusted with it, uh, to be sort of hopeless about it, afraid of it, disgusted. So those are all meanings of nirvinna. And here we have the... Uh, the word that someone is, someone's faith has arisen in hearing about Krishna. Someone believes what they hear about Krishna from authorized persons. At the same time, they're disgusted, detached, fed up with all worldly activities. And they know, the person knows, Veda Dukat Makan Kaman, that uh come on material desires or wishes are dukkha atmakan are simply uh made of misery literally they really just consist of misery that if i pursue any material desires it's just going to cause me trouble and suffering so the person knows that veda here is a verb actually meaning that the person knows this he knows that uh, all these material activities simply cause misery. Or I'm sorry, all these material desires. And although the person is unable to renounce these desires and activities. So this should sound familiar to many devotees, that we know something is stupid and miserable, but we can't quite give it up. And so here... Uh, the word Anishwaraha, uh, one second, so people stop. Um, Ishwara means the Lord, but also Ishwara means someone who has the power to do something. And so the word Anishwara in this context means the person doesn't have the power. The person doesn't have control. So the person is an Ishwara, a non-Ishwara, specifically a non-Ishwara in uh, Parityagi, in renunciation. This is the same word, Parityaga, where Krishna says, Sarva Dharman, Parityaja, Mami. So Parityaja means to really renounce completely. The word uh, tyaga by itself would mean to give up, but paritiaga means really giving up. And so in the matter of giving up, 
these material desires that simply cause trouble and suffering, the person is an Ishwara. He just can't do it. I mean, this should sound familiar, uh, that we know something's wrong, but we can't give it up, some bad habit. It can be a mental habit. We know we shouldn't become attached to certain things, but we can't give up that attachment. Or we have bad habits. We shouldn't do certain things, but we do them anyway. So, uh, you know, I think anyone who's sort of slogging away here in the Mahatattva, trying to be a devotee, understands what this is all about. So, so this is the situation. The person, their faith has awakened. They have faith. They have faith in Krishna's, uh, in, in, all, in, in what they hear from authorities about Krishna. And they are disgusted with all kinds of material activities. They know that material desires simply cause suffering. And yet they're unable to give up all these things. So what's the advice? I mean, what do you advise a person in this situation? To tell then, Bajeta Mang, Prita, the person should worship me, Prita, and uh, be happy, be pleased. In other words, don't be discouraged because you cannot do what you know you should do, or you cannot do it perfectly. You cannot give, every, give up everything you know you should give up, and you cannot embrace everything you know you should embrace because we still have this momentum of our material existence. And so Krishna says uh, here, uh, the person should be prita. Be happy that you're as Krishna conscious as you are. Be happy that at least you have sincere Krishna consciousness. And worship me. You should worship me and don't be discouraged. That's the idea here. Don't be unhappy. Don't be miserable. Worship me and don't be unhappy. That's what Krishna is saying. And have faith. Have faith that it will all work out for the best. And and you have to have firm determination, firm conviction. And that conviction, of course, is that Krishna Bhakti Koile Sarva Karma Kritahoi. Everything will be done if I simply worship Krishna sincerely. Krishna Bhakti Koile. By rendering sincere devotional service to Krishna, sarva karma krita hoy, every duty will be done. So you have to have that faith. You have to believe that Krishna will save you with firm uh, determination, and jushamanas chatan come on, even as you are enjoying or experiencing those material desires. So here the key word is Jushamana. I guess Nita, you, everyone has the verse, right? I, I posted the verse and uh, Maharaj, I hope. It's okay. seven back, the 1120, yeah. 27, 28. It so is on the tent. Pandita Sangha. So let's look up the word in the dictionary, Jushamana, because Krishna says that's what you should be doing. You should be juicing it. Your material desires, literally. So what what does that mean? Uh, it means here's the verb juice. Uh, being pleased, being satisfied, being favorable. 
Uh, or, in other words, obviously, if we're attached to certain material desires or certain material activities, it's because we know that ultimately that's not real pleasure, that's not real happiness. But in the meantime, we're attached to some so-called pleasure that it gives us. So Krishna says, go ahead and experience those things that you desire, but uh, and the devotee at the same time is condemning these material desires or activities as simply leading to misery. In other words, there are activities which in the moment, I mean, sex, of course, is like a the, para, the paradigmatic example that in the moment one experienced some so-called pleasure, but then afterwards it's just it's it's pretty miserable. You don't feel good about yourself. It's just it's like a super blah. Like what did I do? And so therefore, uh, Krishna says, go ahead, experience those material desires, experience them. Don't be discouraged. But garhayan. Uh, so the word, that verb, garhayan, condemning, in the dictionary, it said um, you had to complain about something, to accuse something, to reproach, to blame, to censure, to be sorry for uh, repenting. So in other words, one is simultaneously kind of not trying to be too extreme with oneself, but at the same time condemning these material pleasures as ultimately leading to misery. Uh, in the Bhagavatam, I think it's the 11th canto, the example is given that if you are, let's say, uh, driving a chariot or carriage and there are horses, if you pull back too hard on the horses, you lose control. The horses kind of go wild. So therefore, if you see the horses are running in a certain direction, you kind of have to give them a little room to run and then gradually bring them back under control. It's just like a car. I mean, if if your car, if you lose control of your car, you can't just slam on the brakes and 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 swing the wheel. You'll flip the car over. So it's it's kind of like that. The body, the Vedas. It's one of the oldest Vedic analogies. The body is compared to a vehicle, and uh, the intelligence is the the driver, and the soul is the passenger, and all that. So therefore, basically, Krishna is saying gradually. Because if you try to immediately give up all of your material desires, you'll probably end up worse than when you started. And so it's a very, Krishna is really giving you a very enlightened and psychologically realistic. This is psychological realism in the Bhagavatam. And uh, fortunately, we have a psychological expert here among us, Nitai Gorasundar. So, um, it's like that, isn't it? Psychological realism. People can't just immediately radically change their psychology. It's a question of gradually trying to... Isn't that what you advise patients? Yes, my right. See that strong confirmation from Nitai Gorasundar? <laughs> so um, I guess I'll read the purport that I wrote way back in the day. That must have been... Um, holy cow. That must have been about um, 80s, between 35 and 40 years ago. I, it was, uh, 
Wow. Was it in Miami when it? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. That particular verse, I can't remember. It could have been in Florida. It could have been in Brazil or other places. I was a traveling man in those days. Sanyas Dharma. So um, I'll read the purport. Let's see. I hope I, hope, I, I hope I wrote a good purport. Let's see. Uh, having to awaken faith in the narrations of my glories, being disgusted with all material activities, knowing that all sense gratification leads to misery, but still being unable to renounce all sense enjoyment, my devotee should remain happy and worship me with great faith and conviction. Even though he is sometimes engaged in sense enjoyment, my devotee knows that all sense gratification leads to a miserable result, and he sincerely repents such activities. So that's good. That's a very that's a good translation. So the purport, let's see, it's not too long. Uh, the beginning stage of pure devotional service is described here by the Lord. A sincere devotee has practically seen that all material activities lead only to sense gratification, and all sense gratification leads only to misery. Thus, a devotee's sincere desire is to engage 24 hours a day in the loving service of Lord Krishna without any personal motivation. The devotee sincerely desires to be established in his constitutional position as the Lord's eternal servitor, and he prays to the Lord to elevate him to this exalted position. The word Anishwara indicates that because of one's past sinful activities and bad habits, one may not immediately be able to completely extinguish the enjoying spirit. The Lord here encourages such a devotee not to be overly depressed or morose, but to remain enthusiastic and to go on with his loving service. The word nirvinna indicates that a sincere devotee, although somewhat entangled in the remnants of sense gratification, is completely disgusted with material life and under no circumstances willingly commits sinful activities. In fact, he avoids every kind of material activity, materialistic. The word kaman basically refers to sex attraction and its byproducts in the form of children, home, and so forth. Within the material world, the sex impulse is so strong that even a sincere candidate in the loving service of the Lord may sometimes be disturbed by sex attraction or by lingering sentiments for wife and children. A pure devotee certainly feels spiritual affection for all living entities, including the so-called wife and children, but he knows that material bodily attraction leads to no good, for it simply entangles one and one's so-called relatives in a miserable chain reaction of fruitive activities. The word Dhanishaya, steadfast conviction, indicates that in any circumstance, the devotee is completely determined to go on with his prescribed duties for Krishna. Thus he thinks, by my previous shameful life, my heart is polluted with many illusory attachments. Personally, I have no power to stop them. Only Lord Krishna within my heart can remove such inauspicious contamination. But whether the Lord removes such attachments immediately or lets me go on being afflicted by them, I will never give up my devotional service to him. Even if the Lord places millions of obstacles in my path, and even if because of my offenses I go to hell, I will never for a moment stop serving Lord Krishna. I'm not interested in mental speculation and fruitive activities. Even if Lord Brahma personally comes before me offering such engagements, I will not be even slightly interested. Although I am attached to material things, I can see very clearly that they lead to no good because they simply give me trouble and disturb my devotional service to the Lord. Therefore, I sincerely repent my foolish attachments to so many materialistic things, and I am patiently awaiting 
Lord Krishna's mercy. The word Prita, wow, it is a long purport. The word Prita indicates that a devotee feels exactly like the son or subject of the Supreme Personality of Godhead and is very attached to his relationship with the Lord. Therefore, although sincerely lamenting occasional lapses into sense enjoyment, he never gives up his enthusiasm to serve Lord Krishna. If a devotee becomes too morose or discouraged in devotional service, he may drift into an impersonal consciousness or give up his devotional service to the Lord. Therefore, the Lord here advises that although one should sincerely repent, he should not become chronically depressed. One should understand that because of his past sins, he must occasionally suffer disturbances from the material mind and senses, but one should not therefore become a devotee of detachment as do the speculative philosophers. Although one may desire detachment to purify one's devotional service to the Lord, if one becomes more concerned with renunciation than with acting for the pleasure of Lord Krishna, he is misunderstanding the position of loving devotional service. Faith in Lord Krishna is so powerful that in due course of time, it will automatically award detachment and perfect knowledge. If one gives up Lord Krishna as the central object of one's worship, and concentrates more on knowledge and detachment, one will become deviated from one's progress and going back home, back to Godhead. A sincere devotee of the Lord must be sincerely convinced that simply by the strength of devotional service and the mercy of Lord Krishna, he will achieve everything auspicious in life. One must believe that Lord Krishna is all merciful and that he is the only real goal of one's life. Such determined faith combined with a sincere desire to give up sense enjoyment will carry one past the obstacles of this world. The words jata shaddhat matkatasu are, are most significant here. By faithful hearing of the mercy and glories of the Lord, one will gradually be freed from all material desires and clearly see at every moment the utter frustration of sense gratification. Chanting the Lord's glories with firm faith and conviction is a tremendously powerful spiritual process that enables one to give up all material association. There is actually nothing inauspicious in the devotional service of the Lord. Occasional difficulties experienced by a devotee are due to his previous material activities. On the other hand, the endeavor for sense gratification is completely inauspicious. Thus, sense gratification and devotional service are directly opposed to each other. In all circumstances, one should therefore remain the Lord's sincere servant, always believing in his mercy, then one will certainly go back home, back to Godhead. So, uh, I'm glad to see that when I was much younger, I didn't, uh, I didn't write a lot of nonsense. That was, uh, so I definitely agree, stand by everything I said there. So, um, are there any questions on these points? Manjuri, Manjuri, are you going to answer the questions? Raj, I haven't been paid, so I can't answer questions till I'm appropriately paid for my contributions. Yeah, nice. <laughs> uh, smart. <laughs> to be an Ipcon guru. So, so any questions on these points?
Yeah, so Mark, I have a question. Um, so, you know, when we take uh, Diksha and then we uh, vow in the four principles and chanting, so if some breaks those vows, is that, uh, would that be offensive? Would that be offensive to the Guru uh, and the parampara? I think it depends on the attitude. Because we know nam no balad jesi pampa budhi that it's um it's it's the, uh, a, an offense against harinama against the Lord's name uh, pampa budhi to have a sinful mentality nam no balad sort of thinking well the holy name will save me so I don't I don't have to be very careful so obviously there are extremes here I mean we have it, it's it's a uh, it's a spectrum of views it's not just one thing. So some people can be shameless. They can be shameless. They can be, uh, yeah, just sort of have no real sense of duty, be shameless and just do whatever they want because I'm chanting Hare Krishna. Clearly, that is very offensive. If someone is trying their best, trying to serve, trying to follow, but sometimes, you know, you, you lose some and you win some. You know, sometimes in the struggle, you become overpowered, you regret it, you lament it. It's not your, how should I put it? I think the real difference is whether you are sort of in a sort of a cold calculation that, yes, I'm going to pursue sense gratification and then protect myself by chanting Hare Krishna. That's clearly offensive. But Krishna here in the verse, he makes it very clear. If you really know that sense gratification is wrong, sinful activities are wrong, you want to do better, you're trying your best, but sometimes you're just going to, you know, there's only so much you can do without driving yourself crazy. And so sometimes there's some slip up, but it's, um, but you're, you really want to do the right thing. So that's the difference. So as long as you regret that you know what's right, and then you try to correct yourself as much as you can. Yeah, you're doing the best you can. It's a tough world. And we have material bodies. And, you know, sometimes, even though, our, like Krishna says here, I mean, Krishna describes this, that he says that, uh, you know, you know that material lust leads to suffering, but you're just unable to completely give it up. And so Krishna is talking here about a good devotee talking here, but he's talking about someone who has awakened their faith in the authorized stories and descriptions of me, a person who is really uh, just fed up, fed up, disgusted with uh, material activities. They know that material desires lead to suffering, but you just almost the momentum of your subtle body and your, and, and your physical body, you just you can't yet completely give it up, but you know all these things. And, uh, and so Krishna says, don't be discouraged. You should worship me. You should have faith and firm conviction, even as you are enjoying or you know, gratifying yourself in some way with these material desires, but you are condemning it. You understand that this is not right. It's not what I want to do. And uh, so if you look at these two verses, clearly Krishna is describing the person who 
will achieve success. And, and this person is very different from one who is shameless and has no conscience and is simply freely engaging in sinful activities uh, without conscience, without. So, so there's a clear difference here. So very important uh, verse for all the devotees who are not uh, pure yet. What's that? I mean, I say for uh, my, I mean, this, this, this verse applies to uh, most of the audience, most of the devotees, because none of us are pure. Well, it's a tough world. You know, and this is Kali Yuga. And so Krishna understands that we're in the middle of this crazy age and that it's difficult. It's not, it's not easy to be pure in this world. And so Krishna is here speaking these very encouraging verses to those who are sincere, who really understand what's what, but are, are still in the process of gradually overcoming. Uh, the momentum of their previous material life. Thank you, Marsh. Anything else? Hare Krishna Maharaj, this is Nandavikadas. <laughs> it's a very nice purport, Maharaj. Okay, it's really impressive. Uh, my question here is that, okay, am I uh, proud to be say that okay following four principles and chanting 16 rounds okay i'm proud to that or i am not following that other vaishnava standards like okay, always thinking about krishna worshiping him okay talk about him i didn't go to that level so in my state okay do i need to worry about that or do i need to be happy about or proud about that what i'm uh, <laughs> worry is like salt and pepper as i say you know it's good in the right amount okay. so so if if you worry in such a way that you make even that you try harder to be a devotee, then it's good worry. If it's worry where you know Nitai Gorsundra has to medicate you, then it's uh, you know that's not good. So the idea is that um, you know it's like anything else. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, don't eat too much or too little, don't sleep too much or too little. He says it, it's true for all your you could say human activities. And so too much worry is not good. You just become neurotic and it actually disturbs your spiritual practice. And too little worry means someone is shameless. So it's about balance. It's about moderation. Thank you, Marat. You, you have unmuted yourself, so go ahead. Hare Krishna Maharaj, Danvat Pranam. How do I de how do I detect if I have lingering attachments for my family members on a material platform? Oh, if you don't, you would really be like Iskon Wonder Woman. And so, you know, making that mudra. So um <laughs> yeah, I mean it's I mean it's natural that we have that we have some attachment, but um, so, as I explained in the purport, to be detached from family doesn't mean you don't love them. It actually means the opposite. It means you really love them. And so, because attachment is not love. Sometimes people say, like, are you attached to me? As if that's some big prize. You know, but 
attachment is not love. And that's, I mean, as, as devotees who are trained in the teachings of Lord Chaitanya, we should certainly not make that mistake of thinking that if someone loves me, they will be attached to me. It's exactly the opposite. You can't love someone purely and be attached to them at the same time because attachment means you want to get something out of it for yourself. That's what attachment means. And so, I mean, anyway, I was a grihasta, so. Um, yeah, so, so this idea that I want you to be attached to me, uh, we really, it's about love. I mean, to love, whether it's your personal family or whether it's other people, love is not attachment. In fact, the more you're attached, the less you can love. The more you're attached, the less you can love. Because, because love means giving, attachment means taking. So they're like, you know, you can't, you can't push and pull at the same time with your hands. Try it. You know, try to push and pull at the same time. And so the more you're attached, the less you really love. And the more you love, the less you're attached. So it's not a question of saying, okay, I'm attached to these family members, but I'm just going to burn all the pictures I have of them. And no, it's, you know, it's, it doesn't mean going cuckoo like that. It just means that we try to transform that attachment into real love, see them as spirit, spirit souls, and not to try to exploit them, which is attachment is just exploitation. Whereas love means giving. Okay. So Martin, on the same note, can, can we not see our family members as part of partial of Krishna and and it's a, it's an opportunity for us to serve them because it's Krishna in them as well? Oh, of course. That that's for them, we are serving them. Yeah, that's who they are. They're part of Krishna. And so if you see them as part of Krishna, then you try to serve them as Krishna's servants, you're serving the servants of Krishna, then that is advanced devotional service. So there's no reason to be detached with them. We just well, yeah, detached does no detached doesn't mean you don't love. I think there's a confusion about that. Because to say I'm detached from my family doesn't mean I don't love them. It means I don't have any mundane attachment. I'm not trying to exploit that. It's just like, for example, we see it's the most common thing that among families, there's a collective false ego in the sense that people and family want other people in the family to make material achievements or to be very successful because in, in there, everyone can bask in the achievements of the other members of the family. So it really is like this collective ahankara, this collective false ego. So, if I say I'm detached from someone, let's say a relative, it doesn't mean I don't love them. And so sometimes just in the way we talk when we're not being very theologically precise or philo philosophically precise, we can say, yes, I'm just feeling so detached from my wife or something. And uh, it's kind of the wrong word. So I think the word is misused. Someone can say that uh, because to be detached from someone, well, what's the opposite? Attached, but attached 
in our jargon, you know, in our Vaishnava jargon attached is a mundane thing. You can say, I mean, let, let's say someone was just not having much luck in marriage. And so they might say something like, uh, I'm not really very encouraged to serve Krishna with this person. But even if someone was, but I mean, in a sense, when you really see someone as spirit soul, then there's material detachment, but there's a type of spiritual attachment in the sense that I would like to serve Krishna with this person because this person's association inspires me. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think what we're dealing with here is sort of an, a lot of imprecise language. And so if we clean up the language and get a little more precise, and that's what philosophy is good for. Uh, I mean, philosophy to, to really try to be very clear and very precise about your language and what you actually mean. And it's, yeah, so there, there is a lot of sort of, there are certain terms that are used quite imprecisely among devotees in general. But the danger of imprecise language is that you kind of, you know, trip over yourself. You don't, so that you think, well, you know, I care about my family, so I don't want to be detached from them. But you do want to be detached from them. But that doesn't mean you don't love them. It doesn't mean you don't serve Krishna with them. It just means that you're not trying to exploit the relationship, you know, within the context of a collective false ego. that the goal really is Krishna and not family pride. Another, you had some follow-up? Maharaj, you, you mentioned in your purport that our uh, desire for material enjoyment is due to the momentum from our previous life or previous material activities. So how uh, long can we go on justifying that once we've come into Krishna consciousness? How long can I justify it with this statement? Five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? How long? Uh, good question. Um, if we are sincere, we should see a gradual diminishing. I mean, sometimes Krishna may just say, okay, let's just throw it all out there. And so you may go through a period where you're just sort of, uh, I don't want to say wallowing, but you may go through a period where it's just kind of, you know, there's a lot of that in your mind, these material things. But if we are very sincere, that's my own experience. If, we're, if we are sincere, oh my God, I realized just, I just called myself sincere. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh oh. Anyway, so, yes, we, um, at the end, there, there's a uh, verse toward the end, I think it's the second chapter of the second canto, if I remember correctly, or one of those, somewhere around there where Prabhupada says, a heart is surely steel-framed if despite chanting the holy names, there's no progress. So if we are sincere, Let's say if we're praying to Krishna, please free me from these nasty desires. And let's say they, they seem to, like they won't die. 
then um, that should lead us to intensify our prayers. If we're really trying, because sometimes, you know, there's... I want to say something. You know, Prabhupada talks about this, that um, within our heart, there's these what are called in the yoga jargon, sanskara, sort of this deep psychology, these deep impressions from our previous lives. And so we really don't know how much of it is in there because it's like you're burning the garbage, you know, burning the trash. Sometimes there's a lot of trash. And so, you know, you have to keep burning for a while. And so it just depends on how much trash there is to burn. But if we are, so if we feel that despite our best efforts, some desires are sort of persistent, stubborn, then that should lead us to intensify our prayers to Krishna. And so with that greater intensity that burns up these material desires. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of a balanced Christian's talking because on the one hand, you're preta, you're pleased with your life, even though you're still sort of, you keep stepping on the same banana peel. But still you're pleased and then you're, disgusted with material things, but you still can't completely avoid them, but you are condemning that attachment. So it's, Krishna's really giving this very interestingly balanced picture where on the one hand, you're thinking, Ugh, you know, these material desires are awful. And when I try to gratify them, it's just, I feel so bad afterwards. And this is just really nasty nonsense. But at the same time, you can't just stop on a dime, as they say. Uh, dimes used to be worth something. Anyway, inflation. So you can't stop on a pre-inflation dime. So, so it's a very interesting. That's what, that's what's probably, that's why uh, Nitai Gorsundra picked these verses. He's always got some clever motive. So, but I think these verses are really interesting. Because disgusted, but hopeful, uh, really condemning uh, your bad habits, but at the same time happy. So it's, um, it, it's a real balance here. And if you give up one side of this, if you're just pleased with yourself, even though you've got some bad habits, then that's like shameless. That's like nam no balad, jesse bhavabudi, a defense against harinam, that nam aparad. On the other hand, if you're just, you know, disgusted and discouraged, then where are you going to find the happiness and, 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 you know, to go on with the process? Because if you're doing something that gives you nothing but aggravation, you're not going to keep doing it unless you just are blessed with a nice dose of masochism, in which case also we'll send you to Nitai or Sunder. But anyway, but let's say like a normal person, a normal person, if something, if you're trying to do something and you're discouraged by your own results, like I'll never learn this, I'll never get this. So if you're trying to play a musical instrument, no matter how hard you try, it just never really sounds very good. Then in that situation, people just give up, the, you know, like I'm just not meant for this. I'm just not good at this. And so Krishna doesn't want you to fall into that trap. He doesn't want you 
to be discouraged and become hopeless. At the same time, it's not shameless. So it's like, don't be hopeless, don't be shameless. That's really what Krishna is saying here. And so you have to, you know, really in the Bhagavad Gita, it's really all about balance. And, and so many of the verses in the Gita are about sort of keep your balance. Don't go, because, you know, the pendulum effect, if you go too far to one side, you will come swinging back too far to the other side. I heard one story, which is kind of like scary, that there was a, this devotee couple, Western devotee couple, this was years and years ago, and the husband kind of wanted to go for the lower standard of no illicit sex, which means no sex outside of marriage, which is something that Prabhupada taught very often, although, you know, some of the leaders kind of pretend that Prabhupada didn't say that, but he did. And, um, and then, of course, the higher standard is sex only in marriage procreation. So there's, a low, there's an entry-level standard, but then there's a more advanced standard. So, um, my God, what was I going to say here? Forgot what I was going to say. Kind of got into that. Nitai, what was I going to say? Ba balance. It's about something about balance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was that story lady. about the story about the devotee. Yeah, yeah. this was years ago. Yeah, there was this lady who was like sort of fanatical, and her husband wanted to go for the entry level because that's just what he was able to do. And she was like, no, 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 that, you know, really kind of fanatical about it. And then finally the husband divorced her. And then when the husband divorced her, she like, apparently within like, I don't know, like 72 hours or something, just kind of completely went out of control and had a series of fall downs with other men. And so it was kind of like this scary story. So I'm not saying that, you know, every, you know, every devotee couple should, you know, go for the lower standard, although it is also a standard. But I'm just saying, though, that it was just when I heard that, I was thinking, oh, my God, it's um, so it's about balance, really. It's about keeping your balance and just gradually progressing. If you think I remember when I when I was a, a brahmachari in Berkeley. I was a brahmachari, actually, and a garasta. I don't know if I was ever a vanaprasta. It's kind of a vanaprasta because I didn't have any kids when we lived in the temple, so maybe that counts. Want to get all my certificates, you know, all my ashram certificates. But, um, yeah, when I was a brahmachari, I was going to say that... Um, Oh yeah, in the Berkeley Temple, there was this guy that joined. I think he was just, he'd been in the military. He's kind of this, he was proud. I remember he was proud and uh, kind of, you know, disciplined, proud guy. And so we told him, you got to chant 16 rounds. So, you know, he chanted 16 rounds. And the next day he said, yeah, I chanted 20 rounds today. And the day after that, it was like 32. And he was just like, I guess he was going for the uh, Haridas Thakur Award or something. But he, I remember like every day he kept chanting more and more rounds. He was like really proud about it. And then after a few weeks, he just left, you know, or as we said in those, we say in those days, he blooped. So, um, 
it's kind of like slow and steady wins the race. You have to go for the long haul. It's not easy, as Prabhupada said, it is not easy in this Kali Yuga to become a pure devotee. It's it's a real, it's a real job. And so, you know, if you burn out, it's like, you know, you have to be a long distance runner, not just a sprinter. And if a long distance runner starts out sprinting, he's not going to be a long distance runner. So, uh, any other questions? We actually, you've used up all your free questions. So now, uh... <laughs> so my definitely why this was my ulterior motive why I asked for this because the. We're having this discussion for you know Sangha every day and we have I think we I think we got good clarification and what as you described we cannot be sprinter if you're a long runner. Yeah, long distance Kali, runner. Yeah, uh, yeah. So Kali Yuga, so yeah, don't yeah, don't don't be hopeless and don't be shameless. That's good that good mantra not be don't be shameless and don't be homeless. So hopeless. Yeah. <laughs> That's good mantra, Maharaj. Any, any other question for Maharaj? We have two more minutes left. Hey, Manju, you got to turn your camera back on and stop multitasking. <laughs> I don't know. She... Where's Manju? She's not there. I don't know. Where you... so, I have a question which is not related to this topic. The question. Yes. Last question. Can I ask? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, Amara, since uh, I was raised in uh, you know India and uh, got the culture, you know, just inherited it. So, you know, we talk about demigods, one um, or devta, sorry, devta. We accepted that they are part of parts of Krishna, and it's okay. And it's not mythology to us. That's you know, just uh, that's how it is. But when we look at the Greek mythology, we think, okay, that's mythology, but the Indian demigods are actually, uh, you know, real. So if you try to convince someone who is from the West, like our kids, and they're reading in their texts, you know, in school about mm -hmm. Greek mythology and Indian mythology, so uh, you know, they, that creates doubts in their mind that they're, they're both mythology. Well, yeah, but the doubts are really the doubts really show the person is not a deep thinker. So let's do a little deeper thinking here. First of all, the Greeks and the Romans, they understood that these are the same devas, these are the same demigods, just with different names. They understood that. I mean, they weren't completely stupid. And in fact, they had a, they had a, a philosophy which is called interpretatio greca, the Greek interpretation, which means, and also, the Romans adopted this and called it the Interpretatio Romano. It just means that we're talking about the same people, whether you call someone Indra or, or even the word Zeus, Zeus, of course, it comes from Sanskrit, Deva, and uh, Jupiter. Jupiter is Sanskrit. The Romans called Indra Jupiter, which is a Sanskrit word, by the way, because Jew in Sanskrit is the sort of the root form from which you get Divya, Deva, and, and Peter, you know, it's father. Although in Iskandu, what do you say? Pita, 
which which literally in Sanskrit means either a beverage or uh, so they call, you know, beverage G, some people call their father, or a yellow, yellow G. That's pita. Uh, Sanskrit is pita, pitaji, they say in India, right? Yeah, puja, when they write letters, I've seen it, they used to, puja, pitaji. So, um, but so uh, Peter means father. So Jew, Peter, father of heaven. So our position is not that uh, Indra, etc., Indra di Devata are real, but the Greeks and Romans were just worshiping. It was just pure mythology. That's not our position. They may have had a, an imperfect understanding, but even, you see, you have to understand that this Greco-Roman world, they were just the common people. I mean, you know, sort of, common Hindus, they don't, you know, they just, just tell me where to do the puja. I don't care. They just, they want to get the benefit. They don't, they really don't care. You know, just tell me where to throw the flowers, you know, where to put the paisa and just to get the money. It's almost like if you want a Coke and there's a Coke machine, it's just, you know, you just put it in the right slot. I mean, you don't care. The slot is on the left side of the machine or the right side of the machine. You just put the coin in the slot. So it's kind of, they don't care. It's like, just tell me where to put the paisa, which slot, and, you know, so I can get the benefit I want. But then there are philosophers. There were great thinkers in Indian history, like Chaitanya, like the Goswamis, like Shankara, who, of course, you know, got it all wrong, but still he was a thinker. And Ramanuja and, uh, you know, so on and so forth. So in the same way in the Greek world, the philosophers didn't just think that Zeus, etc. This was like all there is. They were actually interested in God and a monotheistic God who was beyond all these demigods. In fact, uh, if you study polytheisms around the world, including India and every other place in the world, what you find is that in polytheistic systems, people tend to know that there's something beyond these gods. There's a higher truth which is, so to speak, the ground of all being or the source of everything. So, so really, most developed civilizations did not think that this pantheon, you know, all the gods, pan in Greek means all, so pantheon just means all the gods. Uh, developed civilizations didn't think, at least the, the philosophers, they never thought that this is the highest truth. So, um, in fact, if you study Greco-Roman religion, as I always say, it's very much simply Mediterranean Hinduism. And so, so the whole idea of polytheism ultimately is not, it's not a serious philosophical position. And people that hold polytheistic views generally are pre-philosophical. They're not really serious about philosophy because when you start looking at all these things philosophically, obviously just a bunch of gods, whether they're on you know Mount Meru or you know Mount Olympus, it doesn't really explain anything. If you just have a bunch of gods, well, where did they come from? And so um, yeah, so I would say it's not really Greco-Roman civilization versus Hindu civilization. It's actually the philosophers in Indian Europe versus those who are not philosophical in Indian Europe. 
That's the real distinction. My question was, so how do you convince someone who is from uh, this culture, this, the Western culture, like if you tell them about these demigods, but like they don't see it, they, you don't see them. So how do you convince well, them? You, you also don't see atoms. You also don't see quarks. I mean, there's like, you also don't see the galaxy. I mean, you know, someone says there's a picture of it and you believe it. The point is that, um, first of all, most of the things that you believe are true, you've never seen. That's the first point. I mean, I believe that, you know, Ankara really is the capital of Turkey, but I've never been to Ankara. And I've never seen the Turkish government actually functioning in that city. So actually, you know, of all the things that you believe are true, there's only a very tiny percentage of them that you've personally experienced. And so the overwhelming majority of all the things we believe are true, we believe because some so-called authority told us it's true. So first of all, let's look epistemologically at what's really going on in your life. So what's really going on in your life is that the overwhelming majority of things that you believe are true, you believe them because someone told you. Second point is, um, you know, if there is a God, I hate capitalist metaphors like if you buy into or the bottom line. It's like English has become polluted by all these capitalist metaphors and analogies. But anyway, so if you if you um, believe in God, then even the Old Testament talks about celestial beings who are more than human beings, but not God. I mean, why wouldn't God, if God is blessing us with service, if God is a loving Father who's, who allows us to work, you know, in the in, in the family store, then. Uh, then why wouldn't there, it would be pretty narcissistic to think that there's no one greater than human beings. And if there's no one greater than human beings, we're definitely in the wrong universe. You know, if, if, if the best thing in this universe are human beings, we all need to get in, you know, I don't know what you'd call it, transcosmic visas or something. <laughs> I mean, anyway. I mean, imagine if the highest species of living being in the universe includes people like Donald Trump. I mean, you know, we are in serious trouble. So here's an example that if, a, that, that if an ant, let's say an ant is, I actually had this experience when I used to be GBC in Florida. Those were the days when Prabhus were Prabhus. Those were the days when gurus were gurus. So, um, I remember one time when there were actually only about maybe 20 devotees in Alachua County, 20, maybe 25 devotees in Alachua County. And so I was walking at New Roman Radius, taking a Joppa walk. And if you know that the New Roman Radius or Florida, I mean, all the paths are very sandy because, because it's Florida, which is nice, but it never gets muddy. New Roman Radius is probably the only ISCON farm in the world that, well, besides other Florida things, which never gets muddy. But anyway, I was walking, so I sat down in the sand, and a little ant crawled onto my arm, clearly not understanding my exalted position as the GBC <laughs> and of that area. But anyway, so this, this ant crawled on my arm, 
And I had the realization, I had the realization that on the one hand, this ant actually understands the terrain of my arm better than I do. That ant knows precisely, literally every freckle and hair on my forearm to be exact. So it knows my forearm better than me. It knows every little detail. On the other hand, the ant has no idea that it's walking on an arm, which is part of a human anatomy and that someone is watching it. It is totally ignorant of that. So in the same way, we're like the ant, modern science that can tell us all about the earth, whether it's geology or astronomy. Of course, that's not the earth exactly, but well, the earth's atmosphere. I mean, and, you know, geology, biology, microbiology, and so on. But we have no idea. Human beings have no idea for all their detailed knowledge that we are actually on the body of God. We are on the, the cosmic body of God and that because lower beings cannot understand higher beings. So on the one hand, there's been an ex explosion of uh, scientific knowledge of the physical aspects of the earth, the solar system, you know, they send Mars probes and you know, other planets and so on. But the scientists are absolutely ignorant of where they are. Just like the ant has this extraordinary detailed knowledge of my forearm, uh, but the ant is totally abysmally ignorant of the fact that it is my arm or what a human is or what a farm is. So, um, so therefore, Socrates said in, in the work called the, uh, the Apology, his trial, where he defends himself at his trial, that the, the, uh, the oracle at Delphi, there's a Greek island called Delphi, which has been immortalized in many uh, American university sororities, you know, using that Greek letter. Anyway, so there's an island called Delphi, and um, there was a temple there to Apollo, Surya. And uh, the oracle was a priestess, a lady priest. People would go there and they would put questions to Apollo through the priestess. And the priestess would commune with Apollo and then give the answer. And so it was a very important, famous shrine in the Greek world. So. Someone had gone there as Greeks, you know, they, they would go there to ask questions and so on and asked, uh, is there anyone wiser than Socrates in Athens? Or, and the answer was no, Socrates is the wisest man in Athens. And so Socrates says, well, you know, boy, you know, you know isn't that something, you know, that the, the Oracle said that. And he said, I don't know how I could be considered the wisest man in Athens, maybe only for this reason, that I know what I don't know. Whereas most people think they know what they don't actually know. So if I was talking to someone, I would say regarding, you know, cosmic administration, 
The first important fact is that you are totally clueless about that. And if you look at ancient civilizations, whether it's, you know, Greek or Roman or Scandinavian or, or, or you know, all these sort of ancient Japanese culture, India, of course, is very prominent, probably the most literate of all these traditions. Um, what's remarkable is it's not just some chaotic diversity, it's rather a very astonishing agreement because basically you have the same stories and the same people and the Greeks and Romans themselves because they had regular contact with Egypt with, um, we know that, uh, that India, you know, many thousands of years, actually even before the, uh, the Greek civilization reached this high point, there was very bustling commerce between West, West India uh, and uh, the Persian Gulf and by his maritime trade. If you look at history, the world was much more connected than people realize. There was, for example, there was all kinds of international trade stretching all the way to Western Europe on the West and then all the way to China on the East. So if you think of I mean, that's everything except Africa, which is also involved because North Africa, especially, and then other parts of Africa. So, so apart from the Western hemisphere, which is kind of out there, maybe Australia, you know, most of the world was very uh, strongly connected through commerce. And so what you find is a very broad international agreement which the Greeks and Romans recognized. You know, they weren't stupid. Like a lot of modern people, they realized that, hey, we're worshiping the same higher beings. I mean, so what? So you have your name, I have my name. We speak different languages or different cultural influences, but essentially we are worshiping the same thing, the same beings. And they understood that. They understood that. So therefore, what's re it's, it's not chaos. It's not this chaotic plurality of different views, it's an astonishing agreement on how the universe is being managed. And so if, if it's the fact that, you know, they may not have had fancy digital technology, but I think one could seriously argue they were in a higher state of consciousness. Because obviously, higher state of consciousness doesn't depend on the technology you have. It depends on your global picture of reality. And so therefore, you have this uh, nearly universal agreement among societies that are not really primitive about how the universe is being managed. So, you know, reject that at your own peril. And, uh, and see yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I have a different question. Okay, so, so any any follow up on that? No, I, that's completely clear to me. Um, so, like when you say heaven and hell, is that a planet? Uh, well, um, yeah, I mean the word loka, which we of course still have in English. 
through the Greek word locus, L-O-C-U-S, is just Sanskrit loka, and then English words like locate, location, that's all the word loka. We translate often the word locus planet, although in the Sanskrit dictionary it actually means location or place. So I always say that in ancient Vedic culture, Vedic, the three most important things for Vedic, according to Vedic real estate agents were loka, loka, loka. You know, location, location, location. So anyway, so as far as, Imagine, right? Vedic real estate, loco. Come on, laugh. It's a good joke. So, um, a dad joke. Is that a dad joke? So, um, so what was the question again? So, this heaven and had the like, you know, sort heaven of loca. Well, yeah, because we know. I mean, even in this world, we see evidence of it because some people in this world have heavenly situations they have lots of money and they make you know bill gates just bought a new yacht which probably costs slightly more than you know the country of luxembourg or something but anyway it's uh you bought this big yacht and has this big crew and it's anyway Hare krishna so some people have like these swarga-esque opulences and some people are just suffering horribly suffering miserably you know, there's torture, there's just horrible, horrible. It's in the news all the time. So all you have to do is read the news and you can see heaven and hell. And so to say there are places in the world where they do it on an industrial scale, yeah, of course. Maraj, in some like religions like Christianity, there's this ultimate evil figure like Lucifer. Do do we have is there anything like that? No, for the devotees, probably the ultimate evil is just when someone you're really hungry and the cook burns your prasadam or something. But no, as far as as far as this idea of Lucifer, um, yeah, a lot of this came in, I think, with uh, it's not really a major thing in the Old Testament. Christianity theologically, I mean, really went off the rails. And we can trace why this happened. It happened because of people like Paul, because of people like Augustine, who just started fabricating doctrines or, or at least supporting fabricated doctrines. In fact, uh, in, in the last of the four gospels we written, the one which was farthest away from Jesus, and that's a whole other topic, which is the so-called book of John, uh, there's, I think it's chapter 14, there's a statement that I have more to teach you, but you cannot hear it now. Of course, devotees, you know, assume, hey, look at that's Jesus talking about ISKCON. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe, but what it probably is, is that, because uh, again, this is the four gospels, this is the gospel that's most really not Jesus. It's most the one that's it's just it gets in all kinds of things how the Jesus movement uh, started out as a, a Jewish movement. It was transformed for very obvious historical reasons into a pagan movement and it became paganized. But anyway, um, the reason they actually came up with a third figure because there's Jesus and there's God, of course, God, the father and Jesus, the son. I won't go into the Trinity, which I think is really like a train wreck of theology. 
But anyway, you know, in, in earlier Christianity, you have God the Father, and then you have the Son. So why did they bring in the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit? Um, if you look at that chapter 14, it's obvious to me that because um, the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost um, is present in the Old Testament, but it's not a separate person. It's just a name for God. And the reason they made a separate person is because in the early Jesus movement, everyone accepted, obviously, the authority of Jesus in the traditions and legends that were coming down originally. And everyone accepted the Old Testament. But the church was inventing new doctrines like original sin, like eternal hell. And so people said, like, where the hell does that come from? And so they needed a third authority. So when they say, I, you know, the Holy Spirit will come in my name and teach you things you didn't hear from me, it's basically the church doing damage control and coming up with a third figure to justify and validate all the crazy doctrines the church was inventing. So all these things like eternal hell and sort of, uh, what's the word, sort of an agnostic, gnostic move, elevating uh, the devil to like a very prominent role. No, because reality is not dualistic. I mean, there's Maya, but in, in Gnosticism or in this, or, or another form of, of cosmic dualism, God and Prabhupada actually talks about this. If you look at the introduction to the Bhagavatam, Prabhupada said there's a vast, there's a big difference between conception of the absolute truth and a conception of God, which Prabhupada says at the beginning of the Bhagavatam introduction. And this is really what he's talking about. Because in Christianity, because there's a devil that's independent of God, uh, if you believe that devil has his own power, then you don't believe in an absolute truth. And so are there people in the world who are spreading darkness, illusion? Of course there are. I mean, look at, look at mainstream media. So, but to say there's a person, I mean, are there people, sometimes powerful people who are spreading illusion? Or much, yeah, of course there are. But are they independent of God? Of course they're not. So there is no one in the universe that has independent power or is really can compete with God or give God a run for his money. There is no such thing. And therefore, um, I mean, Maya is a benign figure because Maya is just, you know, testing us. If you didn't prepare for your exam, you can't blame the person who administers the test. Maya is just setting up this neutral uh interactive system based on reciprocity so if you do something bad you get a bad reaction i mean why blame maya because you know you got caught with your hand in the cookie jar it's like if you're shoplifting you get caught and arrested and you blame the store for displaying the items like that in an attractive way I mean, that's just, you know, that's just complete nonsense. So in the Vedic system, Maya plus, I mean, there are very few cases, almost, almost no, I mean, the only case where Maya personified, the actual person Maya comes down and tries to bewilder someone 
is when she uh, well, Cupa tried to. I mean, you don't really don't see that. In fact, when Krishna wanted to bewilder the Asuras, he himself came as Malini Morti. He kind of told Maya, "Step aside, madam," and then he, um, you know, he himself became Malini Morti, which is quite, it's quite actually quite contemporary, right? Sort of gender fluidity. Just kidding. But anyway, so um, <laughs> so if if you think about it. We really don't have cases where the person Maya comes and like, like, you know, like a Jezebel and really puts a spell on somebody. So the way I look at it is that there's just a system set up. And Maya, of course, you know, administers that, which is just reciprocal. It's interactive. So if you do this, you get an equal and equal reaction. So really we are the ones who are triggering the illusion by our bad choices. Say there's a devil, there's someone who really, really wants to, I mean, there are people like atheists, for example, like that complete bozo Dawkins, you know, that atheist. I mean, the guy's a clown because, you know, he pretends to be, first of all, he violates the first rule of scholarship which is don't speak outside your area of expertise. So when it comes to the history of religions and theology, he's a complete amateur. He may be a good evolutionary biologist, but he's a terrible historian. And he's a complete idiot when he tries to do theology. So, um, so yeah, there are people who, who want to save us from theism, uh, but so yeah, it's not a dualistic system. Augustine, who kind of fostered some of these uh, bad ideas, for 10 years before he became a Christian, he was a Manichaean, which means he precisely believed that the world is the, a battlefield between the force of darkness and the force of good, and God is all good, but not all powerful. He has to fight against the bad God. And so it's it's a very dualistic, Gnostic type system. And I mean, I think obviously he brought some of that silliness into the Christian world since he was the most prominent Christian theologian for many centuries. But anyway, those are all, you know, issues for another day. And uh, you know, there is a question on chat by Saroji. Okay. She asked, so that means, are we in between hell and heaven? So that means we are in between hell, 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 yes. hell and heavenly planet? Well, if we're good devotees, we're transcendental. So if we're between heaven and hell, that's, uh, yeah, then, then I hope you're not between heaven and hell. <laughs> I mean, if you're if we're sincere devotees and we're really trying to follow and serve Prabhupada, then we're liberated. That's what Rupa Goswami explains. We're transcendental. So maybe we'll stop here. Um, I'd like to thank Ananda Leela, who uh, kindly sets up these programs for us. Thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat>
And I want to publicly thank you. When I passed through Murfreesboro, you were, all, as always, you and me, Avatara, were perfect hosts. And uh, Manju. That was a long time back, right? I know. <laughs> you need to come back. His decade, Manju, was really uh, was wonderful. And Abhishek and Sarvani, so I was... Um, yeah, I'm grateful to everyone for the great treatment. Manju, of course, she was very shy. I was trying to draw her out, get her to, you know, tell me what she really thought about things. <laughs> Next time around, I'll be more open, I promise. Don't worry. Thank you, Maharaj. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Masya has a surgery today, so she's a little down. I'm shy today. <laughs> she, she's a little shy. Who is that there? Who is that? Uh, see, no, I had a, she had a surgery shoulder. Maharaj, you forgot me. Then what am I going to do now? Is that? Oh, that's that's not. You're too far away. And no, I I'm no. Don't hold it. Just Maharaj, you can't can't forget me because then I have no hope. Where am I going? I would never forget you. you. <laughs> I'm clinging onto your lotus feet to get uh, entrance to wherever little better place than this, Maharaj. Not Goloka, but definitely you can. Uh, set me down somewhere better place. Than I, I'm clinging to your lotus cooking. Oh, go on, my lotus <laughs> I'm going to hellish planet if you talk like this, Manak. No, your grace. It's just because you're so far away, and so and and Manju needs to upgrade her her computer camera. <laughs> so I couldn't see you. Right, it's cell phone camera. She oh. asked to not be in the camera. She said she didn't want to be at first. <laughs> <laughs> I to always tell my Guru Maharaj, he says, please accept my, I told him, Maharaj, Guru Maharaj, please do not send me humble experience. Just tell me my blessing that you become a better devotee. So same thing goes to you, Maharaj. Don't ever say that. Just give me your blessings. Especially to my children. You're cooking. Maharaj, yes, tell about your it's, cooking. It's, it's the Vedic barter system. <laughs> I <laughs> I give blessings. And <laughs> you come, Maharaj, I'll cook what for you. With one arm. <laughs> no, no, both hands. <laughs> oh, my God. What happened to your arm? She had surgery today, Maharaj. surgery, Maharaj. My, uh, it was in bad shape. Oh, my God. I, well, I hope it was very successful. Yeah. I also, too, Maharaj. I need your blessing to get attachment again. Talking about attachment, I'm definitely attached to this hand now. <laughs> Certainly. Okay. Shiny Tai, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Maharaj. Thank you, Maharaj. Pleasure. See to you see next month, Maharaj. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.